I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Namwali Serpel on her epic debut novel, The Old Drift. Namwali Serpel is a Zambian writer who teaches at the University of California, Berkeley. She received a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award for Women Writers in 2011 and was selected for the Africa 39, a 2014 Hay Festival project to identify the best African writers under 40. She won the 2015 Kane Prize for African Writing and The Old Drift, which we're going to be talking about today, is her first novel. Namwali, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, first of all, how would you describe the novel? So for a long time, I've been describing the novel with uh, a bit of a tongue-in-cheek phrase, which is the great Zambian novel you didn't know you were waiting for. And that originated uh, when I started writing this in college. And me and my friends would joke about the idea of a novel an epic-sized, you know, great saga about a very small country, um, which is where I'm from. The book tells a multi-generational story of some linked families, and we're going to talk about some of those characters as we go. But, you know, fundamentally also, it's a story of the founding of the nation of Zambia. Um, Tell us something about the founding of the nation of Zambia, but also how you wanted to, to represent that in the novel, I guess. Yeah, so I I wanted to tell the story of my country through a kind of sideways view, a kind of glance at history passing as told through the eyes of a series of characters who are connected, as you say, um, through um, family connections, but also in what I I like to call a, a cycle of unwitting retribution. So the novel starts at an early colonial settlement called the Old Drift, which is on the banks of the Zambezi River. And there, three men get entangled in a, a kind of accident. Um, all three of them are historical figures. Uh, one of them is a Brit named Percy Clark. Uh, one of them is an Italian hotelier named Pietro Cabuzzi. And uh, one of them is a Tonga busboy named Nglube. And they uh, kind of collide in this one moment in a feverish uh, night in the, Victor- the early Victoria Falls uh, Hotel dining room 
uh, at the turn of the 20th century, 1904, 1905 or so. And uh, this sets off a, a kind of metaphysical relationship between their three families. I then proceed to follow those three families over the course of three major generations, the grandmothers, the mothers, and the children. And over the course of the 20th century, as Zambia comes into being as a nation from its earliest days as a, a, a colonial protectorate called Northern Rhodesia, uh, and into a near future Zambia of, of the 21st century. So the novel uh, ends in 2023 or so. Again, before we get into the the place and the characters the other thing i wanted to talk about is the book has numerous narrators as 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 we go through the story but one of them or many of them i should say um there is a chorus of a swarm of mosquitoes that comments on the story as well which is a fantastic device and something that's going to come up again when we get to the to the end of the interview um but tell me why you use that device so the idea of having uh, a narrator come in every once in a while to comment on the story, to tell little pieces of Zambian history, uh, to kind of nerd out about philology and etymology and science and um, and geography and history, uh, that idea was there from the very start. As I said, I, I was writing the novel uh, since I was about 20. And so I started writing in this very grand voice that uh, was very omniscient, knew a lot about these three families and knew a lot about uh, the, the the country as it was as it was coming into into being. Um, and at a certain point, I realized that the the character that I had planned uh, as a as a body for that voice, was too small. It, it, he wasn't capacious enough, and I didn't know enough about him. So I'd had the thought that it would be the final descendant of these three families, because the the last generation ends up in a bit of a, a love triangle, and there's a child of uncertain paternity. And I thought, well, okay, that son will be the the, the person narrating this this entire story, and he's searching for for his roots. But then I realized that he knew too much um, <laughs> as a single human, and I also realized that I didn't know enough about him because he exists in the future, and so I didn't want to have to kind of conceive of an entire new environment for him. I also didn't know which of the two characters was really his father. And I I felt that that was pretty important in deciding what kind of a person he was. So I just, at some point, I think uh, quite late in the process, I was thinking about this voice that was tying all of these elements of the plot together. And I think because I had chosen to begin the novel in a swamp, where this colonial settlement, uh, where uh, by the end of it, most of the people there had died of malaria. There was a sort of kind of persistent uh, theme running through my mind, which had to do with viruses and transmission and contagion. And and at, I read a, a review of Seamus Haney's translation of Virgil's Aeneid, and it quoted a passage that ended up being the epigraph to the book uh, in which he describes uh, a kind of numerous um, uh, spirits, a kind of hovering multitude, humming with life um, by the banks of a river. And suddenly it just all came together and and, um, all of the different pieces of the novel, including the science fictional aspects of the novel, which had um, 
diverted into a, a consideration of drones and HIV AIDS vaccines. And um, it all just kind of came together. And I decided, oh, it's a swarm of mosquitoes. Well, indeed, we should we could perhaps mention that now that at the end of the book, there is a, a swarm of not just drones, but mini drones, like micro drones, which obviously is redolent of a of a um, of a swarm of mosquitoes. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that those plot elements came together at a certain point. And yeah, all of these different filaments, all of these different themes just uh, one day all just coincided. I remember where I was and I remember uh, thinking through each of the individual aspects of it and feeling very excited and writing to both of my editors. The book had already been sold by then and saying, here's this thing I want to try. I know it sounds a bit crazy, but um, I'm really excited by it. And writing those parts of the novel were, that was some of the most exciting uh, writing that I did for myself. So some of the characters in the book are real people based on real people if fictionalized slightly um and percy clark is one of those isn't he yes uh he wrote a book called the autobiography of an old drifter and i landed on him uh, i kind of discovered him um when i was doing research about the old drift as a as a colonial settlement so I, I was with a friend of mine and we were at a, a game park near the Victoria Falls and the Land Rover pulled over and our guide got out and he said, this is the Old Drift Cemetery. And it's this small little grove of kind of tumble down gravestones. And it's the last trace of the settlement um, of people, which at its peak was maybe uh, 100 or 200 people at its most numerous and so when I was researching old drift, which it struck me a remarkable uh, word, it turns out a drift is a, is a relatively common word uh, in geography to describe the deepest and stillest part of a river where you can drift things across. Um, and so it was a sort of outpost where people were crossing the river from the south into the north. And um, I discovered this autobiography, this memoir written by this man, Percy Clark. And as I read it, I thought, I found him very charming. He's this kind of working class British man who grew up in Cambridgeshire and tried to make his way into the university kind of sideways working as a lab assistant in a chemistry lab um, and then got booted out under kind of uh, shady circumstances and then decided to make his way to Africa to, to kind of make his fortune. And I found him very funny and charming and interesting. And then when, once he got it was really disconcerting um, to read these uh, kind of awful words and phrases that he would use to describe the native people that he encountered there. Just really dismissive, derogatory terms. And I wanted, I wanted to capture that shock that I had felt in reading his work. And I decided the best way to do that really was to use his, his own words um, and to, to kind of build the, the narrative around him and these two other historical figures that he mentions in his memoir, Gavuzzi, the Italian hotelier, about whom I was able to learn a bit more by doing some research um, about the Piedmontese Italians who came uh, to Africa. Uh, and then this man in Gulube, who I had no information to go on at all, and so had to build entirely from scratch. 
I wanted to talk to you about writing the character of Percy Clark because I mean you said you know to begin with you were charmed but he is he's a brute and a monster yeah um and I wondered what that was like to actually live with him for that for that period of time well this was I mean it was the novel as you said has uh several you know narrators Technically, the only first-person narrator of the characters, apart from the the plural we of the mosquitoes, is Percy. It's Mm -hmm. his first-person voice. Everybody else is sort of focalized um, in the third person. So I'm I'm with them, um, but there is a kind of narrator um, who who is telling the story. But Percy, I left his words alone. And I think that as a literature professor myself, I'm quite used to reading novels and nonfiction from the historical past that are incredibly racist and sexist and demeaning. Yeah, so I teach American literature, so that's yeah, exactly, be the case. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the last chapter of this of my novel engages quite deeply with Heart of Darkness. So, you know, there's there's a way in which it was not incredibly difficult for me to read um, Percy, but I did feel that shock. Um, of seeing him use the N word uh, or the K and and the K word kafir um, in in his prose with this just kind of blitheness and the, the, his book was published in I think 1925 or 19 maybe even 1935 so there was there's a sense in which you know he was still thinking in those terms way past uh, the colonial moment. And I just, I, I wanted to, to capture a little bit of that heartache that I felt. Also because my experience growing up in Zambia as a mixed race Zambian person was to be around uh, white Europeans who had chosen to migrate to Zambia. And so some of my characters like Sibylla, who's an Italian woman who moves and stays, um, like Percy's granddaughter Agnes, who's a British woman who moves and stays. I was surrounded by a very different sort of, you know, white person from Europe coming to Africa. And so reading this early uh, incursion of this kind of person was was quite uh, disillusioning, I'll, I'll say, rather than rather than disturbing. Give us a taste of what the old drift, the settlement would have been like at that time you know percy describes like a very stratified society even you know beyond the fact that there are europeans and indigenous people because the the europeans like clearly he looks down on the italian and he mentions um a, a jewish person at one point who he doesn't like um and then there are what he describes as arabs and collards who are the people that are like the servants and only then do you get to the indigenous people. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's very much how the um, the description of that place, and of course all the descriptions that we have are from the Europeans that, that went, including uh, French and Italian missionaries who also settled in that part of the world. So who felt very similarly to Percy about uh, indigenous Africans, but would phrase their condescension in more, say, paternalistic terms. Um, but yeah, there's there's very much a kind of stratification built in. And what, but what's interesting, what was interesting for me to read um, in Percy's narrative, is that because he comes from a, a very socially and class stratified society in England. 
uh, he has way more power uh, in Africa than he ever did in England. Um, and there's a part where he goes back to England to, to get married and bring his wife. And, and the way that people treat him there uh, sort of shocks him back into, into how he grew up. He grew up very poor. Um, so I've, I found it very interesting to think about the way that these um, class and race structures kind of intersect and they kind of get all jumbled up um, in the African context, especially at that time when things are still so amorphous. There, there really aren't any boundaries or borders or nations uh, to be had at that point. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Namwali Serpel and we're talking about her debut novel, The Old Drift. And Namwali, I want us to talk about some of the other characters, a couple of the other characters yeah. that feature in the book. Um, before we do, as you said, the, the book begins with Percy and then goes on to be set out in generational terms so there's chapters based around grandmothers mothers and daughters and as any anybody just hearing me describe that will notice these are all set out on the the matrilineal line and I, I just wanted to talk about that decision yes although i will note that you've made a, a slight error as many people do in describing the last ch- uh, chapters as the daughters when it's actually the children, the children. because it's a- it's actually two men and, and a woman uh, in that last love triangle. Um, 
which I, I find it is it, Joseph and Jacob. You're right. Yeah, exactly. it is. But but I, a lot of people make that mistake. Like I, I I don't fault you at all. And I think it's a I think it's a telling mistake that people make because I think it suggests the weight of female experience in the novel. Indeed. Uh, even though my intention, as as set out, you know, in in terms of actual numbers, um, in in the characters, and uh, was not necessarily to to write a matrilineal family story like, say, the Joy Luck Club. Um, there are lots of of other references that I could point to where the majority of the characters are are women or the majority of the characters are men. I wasn't really thinking in those terms when I started writing the book. I actually think it's my own flaw as a young writer, which was just that female experience was more accessible to me. So when I was mapping the novel out, there was no point where I changed a character to become a woman or to become a man instead or choose to go from a man's perspective, choose to go from a woman's perspective. These were just the characters that came to me as they did. So, for example, the families, even though the the novel is structured in terms of generations, each of the individual families came to me in their multi-generational uh, pack. So the first family that came to me was Martha Mwamba, Sylvia, her daughter, and Jacob, Sylvia's son and Martha's grandson. My sense of, of the, the gender balance is, is more retrospective looking back at myself as a young writer uh, than something I can really uh, make a claim to have done intentionally. Um, I want to talk about Matha, and particularly again, uh, uh, another real life character that she basically encounters and becomes um, involved in. That's um, Edward, is it Malula? It's Mukuka and Mukuka. I couldn't tell whether that was my writing so bad, I couldn't tell whether that was an L or a K. Edward Mukuka Makuka Unkoloso. Who, a real life character who basically was behind the um, Zambian space program. So yes. let's talk about, about that strand of the story. Yeah, so I, I learned about uh, Nkoloso relatively late in, in the process. I was writing the book uh, off and on, and I had this character of Martha. She had a different name then. Um, she's also a historical uh, figure, that her name. And I, I stuck to the facts that I knew about her young life and then diverged basically when she becomes a young woman um, and is kicked out of the space program. So the space program was Nkoloso's attempt to join the space race uh, right on the eve of Zambia's becoming a nation, becoming an independent nation uh, in 1964. And so the, the first Time magazine article about our independence celebration had as its last paragraph a description of what it called a, a school teacher named Nkoloso who is training some young men and women uh, and one woman um, to go to the moon. Uh, Martha Mwamba is a, quote, curvaceous 16-year-old who is raising 12 cats to take with her to Mars um, to be uh, released one by one to make sure that it's habitable. 
Um, and Coloso says that he's also training his cadets to walk on their hands, which is the only way that one can transverse the moon. He was swinging them from ropes, uh, from trees, to and, and rolling them downhill in empty oil barrels to simulate anti-gravity conditions. Um, and so this was sort of like this kind of footnote to what otherwise was supposed to be this great political triumph, this this kind of birth of, of a new nation out of um, out of colonialism, and you know reporters from all over the world, from Canada, from Germany, from England, from America, came to interview Incoloso and to film him. So you can actually see footage of his do-it-yourself training techniques on YouTube now. If you if you Google his name. Um, and I, I came to him uh, to, to this uh, story through the work of a, a Spanish photographer named Cristina de Medel, who made a, an exhibition called Afronauts, where she was sort of kind of uh, riffing on the fact that this had happened. The photographs were, were taken, I think, in Spain, not in Zambia. Um, and it's sort of um, a, a kind of speculative, dreamy, hipstery uh, picture of, of what the space program looked like. And I got very excited to see that a short film called Afronauts by Francis Podomo, a Ghanaian-American filmmaker, had, had done really well um, and in, is in black and white. And she had picked up the story of Martha Mwamba as well. And so I decided I, I wrote a, a piece about... Uh, the space program, having done some archival research on Nkoloso himself and done some interviews uh, back in Zambia. So I wrote a nonfiction article about the, the space program in the New Yorker. And then I decided to try to fictionalize at least part of, uh, of what the space program was and to kind of posit my own theory as to, as to what Nkoloso was trying to do. Martha, she basically ends up obviously we know they didn't go into space but you know she she also <laughs> becomes pregnant and um yeah. ends up having to sort of leave and then you know what she does is she weeps that's a, yeah. a characteristic of Martha. she weeps a lot and yeah. and one of the other characters that you mentioned earlier Sibila, the um, italian um is born covered in hair and i wanted to talk about incorporating these sort of elements like I've seen the book described elsewhere as you know incorporating elements of magical realism and stuff and I just wanted to talk about um incorporating these elements in it yeah so you know with Martha you know she she historically the cat the, the person was kicked out of the program uh for getting pregnant and Inclosa blamed that incident for why the, the space program fell apart and so when I was when I had learned about the space program and that that one fact of how it ended happened to coincide with this character that I had already conceived as a woman in her teenage years, 16, 17, who ha who was pregnant and was abandoned by her lover and who begins to cry all the time. So that figure and that moment of heartbreak and being left with this baby and uh, crying for decades and decades I think is the first thing I wrote of this novel in about the year 2000. So it was this kind of strange um, combination of a real, a real historical figure who was involved in this strange Afrofuturist, almost science fictional uh, adventure with this magical realist character that I had conceived very early on. 
Um, I was very obsessed with magical realism when I was a student. I was reading a lot of Marquez and Rushdie. I would even characterize some Nabokov as, as magical realist, uh, Tony Morrison, uh, Maria Luisa Bombal. And so that influence was very strong. And I've been thinking more and more as people ask me this question, what about magical realism appealed to me? And I think you can see it in the specific kind of magic that I get interested in in, um, in depicting, which is to say there's magical realism that's about the environment, um, that's about creatures or beasts or, uh, you know, plants, um, that sort of uh, natural nature, uh, magical realism. And mine is much more focused on the body and very specifically on the surface of the body and where it interfaces between the inside and the outside of you. So the skin, the eyes, tears, hair, all of these um, uh, kind of aspects of, of the human body and specifically, I guess, the female body in the book that I, I was interested in exaggerating or intensifying. And I'm also very interested in like what this has to do with how we perceive ourselves in terms of beauty. So one thing about Sibylla is even though she's covered in hair, which grows continually from her body, no matter how fast she tries to trim it. And there's a kind of fairy tale element there of, of Rapunzel that I'm playing off of. Uh, she's considered very beautiful. And her daughter, in fact, is obsessed with the fact that her mother, even though she has this this feature that you would normally think would be grotesque or monstrous, is is actually quite beautiful. And the same with Martha, where I wanted the tears, um, which are considered this kind of feature of femininity, of, of sorrow, of the pieta, um, of this, this idea of Mama Africa crying for her children, and to make that turn into this kind of biological nightmare. Because if you're crying all the time, you're not going to be able to see, your skin's going to become a certain kind of way, you're going to get salty and cracked. And and so I wanted to kind of exaggerate these things in, in different directions to see what would come of them. But I'm, I'm interested in other genres as well, which is why the novel in many ways is inspired by something like Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, where I'm moving through magical realism, social realism, historical fiction, and uh, by the end of the novel, we're in science fiction. Just to finish it off then, can I get you to, to read us a little bit? Yes, sure. So I'll just read from the very beginning of the novel, uh, which is from the perspective of the mosquitoes, and tells one kind of origin story about the creation of Zambia. Zona. And so, a dead white man grows bearded and lost in the blinding heart of Africa. With his rooting and roving, his stops and starts, he becomes our father unwitting, our inadvertent Peter Muzungu. This is the story of a nation, not a kingdom or a people. So it begins, of course, with a white man. Once upon a time, a goodly Scottish doctor caught a notion to find the source of the Nile. He found instead a gash in the ground full of massed, tumbling water. His bearers called it Mosiotunya, 
which means the smoke that thunders, but he gave it the name of his queen, Victoria Falls. He described the falls with a stately awe, comparing the flung water to British things, to fleece and snow and the sparks from burning steel, to myriads of small comets rushing on in one direction, each of which left behind its nucleus rays of foam. He speculated that angels had gazed down upon it and said to each other, how lovely. He even opined, like a set designer, that there really ought to be mountains in the backdrop. Adventure, disaster, fame, commerce, Christianity, civilization. He was mauled by a lion that shook him in its jaws, he said, as a dog shakes a rat. His wife died of fever. His beloved poodle drowned. He voyaged over land and along endless waterways. He freed slaves as he went, broke their chains with his very hands, and took them on as his servants and bearers. Late in his life, he witnessed a massacre, slave traders shooting at people in a lake, so many the canoes could not pass. He despaired. He was broken, broke. Queen Victoria had forgotten him. The royal geographers said he was dead. Then a mercenary Welsh bastard named Stanley presumed, shook his hand and sent word to London. And in an instant, he was infamous, as if risen from the grave. Yet he refused to return to merry England. Doddering, he drove deeper into the continent instead, still seeking his beloved Nile. Oh, Father Muzungu, the word means white man, but it describes not the skin, but a tendency. A Muzungu is one who will Zunguluka, wander aimlessly until they end up in circles. And so our Muvius Muzungu pitched up here again, dragging his black bearers with him. His medicine box went missing. Who took it? They never found out. And with it, his precious quinine. Fever hunted him and finally caught him. He died in a hut in the night on his bed, kneeling, his head in his hands. His men disemboweled him, planted his heart under a tree, and bore his corpse to the coast. A ship called the HMS Vulture took his body home. What was left without the living was buried under stone in the nave of Westminster Abbey. His people had recognized him by the scrapes of the lion's teeth on his humorous bone. Such wonder at the resolve of his bearers to travel with a corpse for months on end, suffering loss and injury, sickness and battle, through blistering heat and blundering rain, beating off the taboo that to carry death is to beckon it, to come all the way to England, to face interrogation, to build a model of the hut that he died in. What faith, what love, no, no, what fear. That corpse, that body was proof. Without it, who would have possibly have taken their word that a white man among so-called savages had died of bad luck, a mere fever? Men never believe chance can reap great consequence. Yet the story of this place is full of such slips. Error, noun, from the Latin, errare, to stray or to veer or to wander. For instance, the Wazungu who carved this territory into a colony, then a protectorate, then a federation, then a country, came here only because Livingston did. They drifted in and settled the land. They drew their arbitrary lines in the sand. 
They stole treaties from chiefs with a devious ruse, a royal charter meant for business but used for state. Waving flags and guns and beads to trade with, they scrambled rabid for Africa and claimed it was Livingston's legacy. Neither Oriental nor Occidental, but accidental is this nation. Would you believe our godly Scotch doc was searching for the Nile in the wrong spot? As it turns out, there are two Niles, one blue, one white, which means two sources. Neither one of them is anywhere near here. This sort of thing happens with nations and tales and humans and signs. You go hunting for a source, some original word or symbol, and suddenly the path splits, cleaved by apostrophe or dash. The tongue forks, speaks in two ways, which in turn fork and fork into a chaos of capillarity. Where you sought an origin, you find a vast babble, which is also a silence, a chasm of smoke, thundering, blind mouth. So I've been talking to Namwali Serpo. We've been talking about her debut novel, The Old Drift, which is out now in the UK from Hogarth Books. Namwali, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Thank you so much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.